Welcome to another episode of Free Range American here at the Total Archery Challenge yes, in sir. Big Sky, Montana, with the one, the only Jack Carr. Back for episode Thank number you. two. I know, I feel so honored. I know, it's awesome yeah. to it's so not cool. do it through Skype. The that's internet, right. That's you know? right. Last time you guys were uh, in isolation in Texas, yep. I think. So we did it remotely. Uh, but it looked like you were having a good time out there. Uh, yeah. I mean, Texas is always a good time. Obviously, because shooting some things, blowing some stuff up, correct. Yeah. And plus, Matt's there, JT's there, Logan, everybody's there. So yeah. we're all there at the same time. It's it's fantastic. And did you see um, John Stossel posted a thing? There's a new book out there, and I forget the author's name, but uh, she did a bunch of research into all the other taxes that you pay, other yes. than the percentage bracket yes. that you're in. It was awesome. It's, I mean, we all know it. It's but crazy. Every single thing yes. essentially that you do, so you're paying, and it's a big way system more. of circle of fucking taxes that you just keep paying. You know, you're, you're taxed on your income, you're taxed on your sales, you're taxed on your property, you're taxed, tax, 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 Hotels, tax, everything. Every single thing. Everything. Mm -hmm. But it's, but it, it doesn't surprise me because if we look at who's making decisions on budgets, we look at our, our elected officials, they are the biggest group of fucking idiots. Oh. I think... In recorded history, you may be right. I think so. Like, it's I definitely think not drawing someone that uh, is you know entrepreneurial no. and is is driven, and it's someone that's like, how can I use this to benefit myself, my family, and my constituents to keep me up there, to keep right. me benefiting myself and my family? Like, it's disgusting. Which gives me a lot of material to work with because right. it's very easy to make a politician a bad guy in my novels yeah. well, because they are just they are I for mean, the most they're, part. There seems like super not good people. There are super easy things that we can change, which, and we don't need to get into a crazy political rant, but a little bit here, which is if you're writing legislation or submitting legislation and well, a good, a good example, we'll just talk about pharmaceutical the industry for just a second, because I think this is something we could all kind of like, I know what rebel we're we can about to go talk down. about this for a minute, but it's like, okay, so if I'm my election is funded by a super PAC, I I go into Congress or Senate, whatever it is, and I start submitting and writing legislation, but that super PAC is funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And then I cannot be prosecuted for insider trading. Like any executive, any executive in corporate America or in the banking industry would be fucking taken to task over these things. However, our elected officials can't. To me, I think of this, this is super easy on a, on, a, on a level of if my election was funded by the pharmaceutical industry, my research is funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And oh, this pissed me off as well, which is the American taxpayer is also paying for research, research mm -hmm. and patents that we don't enforce that pharmaceutical companies can then turn around and directly profit from the research that we funded as taxpayers. Right. And oh, by the way, this is something that the fucking crazy Democrats and the crazy Republicans can both agree on. When you get into politics, you should not leave politics wealthier no. than when you enter yeah. that. And that's what we have right now. And that's sure. what we have right now. The people making the laws are above the law. Correct. 
there's, that is there's so a fundamentally system. wrong as a society. It, it has to change. Yeah. I think. I think that. How do you take the politics? How do you take money out of politics? Right. It's it's that super complex conversation that we've been trying to 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 do for I don't know how long. I mean, campaign finance reform. Like, holy shit, that's been I debate as long as I've been alive. And when they throw so much, many things into those bills that have nothing to do with actual campaign finance no. reform, which makes other people then vote against them, even if the main, the title of the bill sounds good and maybe has some good things in it. It's just so crazy. I mean, I, I can't imagine any, I would never want to go into politics. I couldn't do it. I look at the last no. 20 years of my life in the military as that was my service. And then looking at politics, cause I get asked all the time about going into politics and the answer is an easy one. Absolutely not. Yeah. No well, I way. think that's the answer for any like, you know, fairly intelligent individual. And, and this came up on the on the Rogan podcast when he was talking to to Eric Weinstein. And he, he threw out something that, you know, is unique and we don't have in our sense like we need but it goes back to the the our first president, you know, Washington didn't want to be president. Didn't want to be king. He could have been a king. Yeah, he didn't want to be king, yeah. But, but he was no. basically forced into this role. And I think and I'm interested to hear, hear your take on this, is are we at that point? Should we be doing that? We're basically like, hey, you're up. Like, we need somebody good in here. We're drafting you. You have to say yes. I think there's still something to that um, with term limits, with people that aren't career politicians. I mean, the career politics has just absolutely corrupted the entire system. And, you know, People say it all the time. It's like, hey, I don't want to see the president's taxes, someone who enters politics very rich and maybe loses a little bit of money. I want to see the tax returns of people who entered politics without so much money and right. left multi, multi-millionaires. Well, the, like, Pelosi, yeah. the Pelosi exactly. empire is a perfect example of that, yeah, exactly. right? Where, you know, I think that her nephew is the governor, right? Gavin Newsom is the governor. Oh, or is the they related or somehow? Yeah, they are. He's a, yeah, he's a, yeah, California. I mean, it's, it, it is it is an absolute nightmare. I think when we look at the the entire ethics and what I think there should be, I think there should be a separate investigative authority that uh, that that looks into politics all the time, and they should be part of. Essentially, they only answer to the people. And if you had a bunch of professional investigators that were only investigating campaign finance and campaign all the time. So every politician and every president that goes through office, I think they should have to withstand the same type of scrutiny that President Trump did with the Mueller investigation. It's like, that's great. So you've been elected to president. Now we're going to spend the next 18 months digging into every aspect of your entire fucking campaign. And we're going to publish it. We're going to publish it in a long report to everybody in the United States as to exactly what the fuck you did during your campaign. Because the other thing that I've thought about is that no president in American history has ever withstood the amount of investigated or in, the investigation and oversight into their campaign to Russiagate than the Trump campaign did. And I, I, I haven't, you know, waved the the banner for Trump. Like I, I, I openly say, I really wish he would fucking dial back on his tweets. And I think <laughs> that there's a significant amount of, I, I think there's some things that we could definitely change as far as the the information is concerned, and how we're presenting information. But boy, I'll tell you, man, no campaign is ever, and nor would they. There's no fucking way 
the Clinton administration, uh, the Obama administration, uh, the if we even went Anybody. back to Bush one, they those guys would not have survived. We they just wouldn't have survived that level of scrutiny. There's just no fucking way. No, I think that's a great idea. Like the <clears throat> you know, law enforcement has internal affairs to Correct. investigate stuff like that. Why wouldn't we have a system like that within our that all they do politics. is just investigate politicians. That's yeah. all they do. And they should be like they, we should be as a people, we should be really interested to know what the fuck you guys are up to. Like, and they should answer only to the people and they should just publish information just on a regular cadence to just fucking publish this open source information. Now that's a taxpayer initiative I could get behind. Yeah. Like I could get that. Just investigate every one of these guys. Hell, there's convicted felons that are, the, the, there's a few. There's a few. This is. <laughs> did you ever read that report where they were talking about how many <laughs> DUIs? Oh and all my that stuff. gosh! Oh my gosh These yeah. guys are scumbags. You look at that Beto O'Rourke or whatever the fuck his name is. Look at that guy. He's like he's just a fake person. Uh, he's just a. Well, I mean, outside well, of the fact that I think he's a absolute fucking clown. <laughs> the other side of all that, though, is that there is so much information readily available today from every email, text, yeah. tweet, where you can pick and choose single sentences out there to make, Correct. to kind of morph it into something that you want it to be and distract. So there's that side of it too. And that makes it so easy right. to do to take something either out of context or maybe in context, put it together with something else and then just create a narrative that has no basis. In fact, because you created it essentially by picking words, picking mm -hmm. sentences out of a person's story to create this, this just distraction that you want. So, but it's, it's crazy, especially with all the information out there today, so readily available. And then if, when you investigate it and get into somebody's emails and Pick and choose these things. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, who would want did, to go into that? Like, who would want to go into politics? I don't just, know. Like, who would want to be a police officer right now? Right. Like, who's like, man, I cannot wait to I graduate wait to high school or graduate college or whatever. And I cannot wait to go and serve as a police officer in LA and New York and Seattle, wherever else, my hometown, wherever it is. Like, who is wanting to do that right now? I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not well, quite I, done with, I'm not quite done with Flynn though. Not quite done with saying something about the, the, like what they did to General Flynn was a complete one. It was a, it was completely unethical. Like I don't know the, that I heard about this. Oh, I mean, they, they investigated obviously in Russia gate when they, uh, when it's they, four years of his life. Yeah. Deleted. Boom. And the guy was, was teed up from the beginning. I mean, the Bureau basically fabricated a bunch of bullshit they didn't document the, they, they had a bunch of handwritten notes from their interviews. It was just a sloppy, big fucking mess. And where, where is the Bureau just being eviscerated from the top? Yeah. Like they, they, they should be just firing everybody for not following protocol. And, but I haven't seen that. Have you seen it? Have we seen mass termination? In some of these nope. organizations, no, we didn't see it in Benghazi. We didn't see it in this. Like these, these, these professional bureaucrats that are adhering to a specific political party and not adhering to the people, these guys need to be gutted. They need to be taken completely out of our government system. They do. Because General Flynn, I mean, and I, I, I didn't read the Mueller report. I listened to the Mueller, Mueller report. It's like 23 hours long. I listened to it in different segments. And 
you know, I, I heard a, a wide variety of things about the report, you know, how inflammatory it was and how, you know, they could piece together. And basically they had nothing from the beginning and they finished with basically nothing. And there was a bunch of speculation as to what conversations had taken place behind closed doors that they couldn't track. I'm like, man, you guys are really pulling some shit out of thin air. Like in in saying that we're going to delay, can you, can Russia delay any actions towards America until the new administration comes in? That that's not illegal. That's actually standard for every incoming administration or possible administration to have some type of open dialogue with a foreign country. It is, it is standard. As far as I know, every president that has a possibility of becoming president, even in the prelims, has had some type of open dialogue with some ambassador or somebody from another foreign country. It's not as if they're doing closed door meetings and deciding what exactly they're going to do. But it just seems a little bit fucking crazy to me that we spent so many years with Russiagate and we really didn't pull up anything. There was no smoking gun. Nothing. Nothing. If I had written that, let's say, let's say I started writing books instead of in 2018, it was 2005, right. 2000, 1995. If I had written about this as fiction, no one would have believed no. it. Oh no! Like you can it's suspend disbelief for like for like one thing in a novel. Like you, you can ask that reader to believe you or to come along with you for one suspension of disbelief. But once you start stringing them together, two, three, four, five, then you kind of you lose the reader. Like what? Um, but yeah. you can ask. You can get one. You can get away with one, and that's yeah. fun because it's it's fiction. It's not real, and it takes people out. But have you read? I written this in two thousand five or nineteen ninety five or something. No one would have believed it. That would have been suspension of disbelief after suspension of disbelief. Yeah throughout yeah. the entire novel yeah. and people have been like eh, this would never happen this is no that's a, that's not real when in fact look what we're dealing with today something that doesn't even people wouldn't even believe it if it was fiction no 15 yeah. 20 years ago yeah. yeah do you as you're writing your fourth book right now do you feel like the current events and what's going on is kind of changing like mm -hmm. how you're writing and what you're including in your story a little bit. Yeah, it certainly does because it comes out, fourth one comes out April, 2021. So I have to think as I'm writing it now, okay, if I'm talking about facial recognition techno technology, if someone's wearing a mask and they're required to wear a mask walking down the street, well, are they going to, we're going to still have masks in April, 2021 when this comes out or is right. that going to be gone. And I have to right, think about that yeah. ahead of time now. So I'm kind of writing it in a way where people are thinking about how mm -hmm. we've dealt with COVID. And that is, uh, is something at the forefront of their thoughts right. as I'm moving into this next novel and working my way through it. But it is something that I think about and I have the characters thinking back on this time in COVID, how we reacted as a country, what other countries learned by watching our reaction, mm -hmm. uh, particularly our enemies. Yep. Um, and then how they can apply that in their battle plans to hit us when we're weak. So that's kind of the part of the theme. But but those practical pieces, as far as, well, are people going to be wearing them on? On planes? Is there going to be social distancing? Yeah. How does that work into the to the novel? Is an action going to be realistic if people have masks or not? And so it's it's tough to kind of figure out, but it's also fun. It also uh, keeps me I don't know something else to just just life. It's another yeah, thing to sure. have to figure out and, and work through as I'm writing. Yeah. So your last novel, how did that do? 
It's it quite well. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to you guys. <laughs> oh, uh, very small part. Awesome. No, you guys were amazing. We did this pod, podcast, Veterans React. We had the giveaways and it was just it was so awesome. Um, so yeah, I made the New York Times list. Savage yeah. Sun. Yeah. My favorite book, by the way. Thank you. John, Thank you. That's the general book. consensus of all three that it's, yeah. uh, it's people's favorite. Um, Black Raffle Coffee, of course, is in all three, <laughs> and uh, and hopefully we'll get it into the uh, the series with Chris Pratt too. Yeah, get Chris a little, Pratt. Uh, yeah. So Amazon picked it up, right? Amazon picked it up. So Chris got it first. Okay. So he optioned it. Is how it works. So now he he owns it, and then he gets to decide whether he wants to exercise that option and take it, it to the next level. And he puts together the team. So Anton Fuqua, who created, uh, did Training Day and yep. Tears of the Sun and the Equalizer, Magnificent Seven. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so they got together and they brought a writer in to. Right. Do a pilot. And then uh, I worked with the writer on that pilot episode. And then they took all three of them, took that pilot episode to Netflix, to Amazon, to right. Showtime, to all these different places, HBO and Apple. And then Amazon won. And Amazon has it. So it's eight part series right now on Amazon. And I think they're supposed to start, they're supposed to start filming in January of 2021. So, uh, Chris is fired up. It's so cool to be working on it. He wants to get all that. He wants to keep the, the realism, the authenticity, to keep it gritty, keep it violent, all mm -hmm. those things. That's very important to, to him because you have to change things a little bit when you're telling a story visually sure. than you do if you're, if you're reading it. Yeah. So, uh, but I love the direction that it's going. I'm so happy that you have the opportunity to, to be included on, totally. on the writing process for the show because you know that happens a lot in Hollywood where you know somebody writes a script or they write a book and it gets adapted but they don't really have any process and then mm -hmm. they're kind of upset in the whole yeah. output of it so the fact that you're in there to make sure it stays authentic. It's really cool. Yeah, no, I feel very fortunate. Usually they like to get rid of the author right away because they don't want him in the corner oh, or her saying, yeah. you ruined my vision. You know, that's not how this character would do this. Right. Or right. why don't you have to say just kind of a pain. So for me, um, I've just been a student of this my whole life, just growing up, watching movies, reading books, noticing how they adapt books like First Blood book, First Blood movie. You know, yep. both very good, both very different. Or uh, Presumed Innocent by uh, Scott Chirot. Great book, also a great movie. Um, so, I, and then you see some that, that don't work quite as well that are adapted. So I, I internalize those knowing that one day that I, well, hoping one day that I would be in this position. Right. So when I talked to the the team out there and I got to throw in all that history and they were kind of like, oh, this isn't really the normal author who wants to just make sure that we take his work or her work and adapt it uh, to the screen almost word for word or chapter by chapter. Uh, and that that doesn't really, really work. But for me, understanding how the process works, being a student of it my entire life, being able to articulate that to them, uh, they appreciated that. And Chris wanted me involved from the beginning, which was very cool. And uh, it's a great team. Because just like anything, those guys want to do fun stuff with guys that they like. Right. like they don't want to bring in an actor or a director or a writer that's a pain. Like they want to do stuff with right. cool guys. Yep. And uh, so that's, it's just like anything else. And so it's fun to be a, be a part of that. Yeah. yeah. So how much time is that going to take? So are you going to be on site during most of the filming? I'm not sure. I don't ask too many questions because I'm just so happy to be here. You know, I don't yeah, want to be the guy sure. that's a pain. I'm Got just kind of okay. like super happy. Right. Um, but uh, the pilot script took a long time. Like it took right. most of January, most uh, first week or so in February uh, to get that thing dialed in, get it just right so that Chris could take it and that those guys could go to those movie studios and, and talk to them about it and pitch it. Uh, so that took a lot of time. So yeah. we'll see when the other scripts start coming in. And I started, so I'm advising on all those scripts, helping out with all of those. And then I'm an executive producer, which I'm not quite sure 
sure what that means. Uh, but as we go through this, I'll let Sounds you know. Cool. It's yeah. going to sound cool. Yeah. It's a good title to have so, under your belt. That's yeah. for damn sure. So exactly. I think I'll be on the uh, yeah, I'll be on the set for some of it at least, and then uh, yeah, it'll be fun to work through like those fight scenes. That'll be right. awesome. I know Chris wants to get on the gun and get in shape and keep it so it looks like so when guys like you see it, you're not like ah. Oh. Yeah, right. Why did he have his thumbs like that on that right. clock or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, like, yeah. why did why, what? Like, that's not how. So he wants. He's very aware of that. He wants people with special operations backgrounds to watch it and be like, oh, this guy did the work. He cared right. about it enough to train to take this thing so seriously and to knock it out of the park. So uh, that's pretty cool too. That would be bad. That would be badass. To you, what would be super cool is if we so happen to get like an invite to one of those things, Logan. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe, maybe a like BRCC cameos. Maybe like an uh, invite would be super cool. I'm not. I'm do not. You know I'm anybody? Not, I don't know. If I know somebody, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah, we got to get out there because that's real. I mean, that's why I put it in the book. You know, that's why yeah. I put uh, like put put the watches made by veterans. I put the knives made by veterans. I put like all the weave that stuff into the storyline because all that stuff tells you something about the character, whether someone's drinking Starbucks or they're drinking right. Black Rifle coffee, that tells you something about that person that helps develop their character. It helps move the story forward. Right. And, uh, and I love to do it. And of course I love to put stuff in from people that I like. So well, it was super funny because I was like, you know, as I was reading and listening to it, you know, I could see how you're weaving different sections of this. And, and I think we talked about it. Maybe we didn't, but I've talked about it several times where uh, the way that you were, you were portraying different aspects of the agency. I've never actually had or read a book, a fiction book, where people got different personalities, correct? Different departments, you know? So if you're talking about a certain division or department of the agency, who is, who is this person? What type of person is this person, right? Who are they recruiting from? Mm-hmm. What, what are they doing? Who are they, who are they embedded and influenced with? And it's interesting because I read your book and then Louis L'Amour did a book. Um, Last of the Breed? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. One of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Someone so. just sent me a hardback first edition. Seriously? A fan did, yeah. Oh, nice. So, I'm so thankful. Yeah. Incredible. So then I, I, I got that right after. So Because I hadn't read that since I was probably, I don't know, like I was in high school yeah, or yeah. something like that. Right. And I was talking to Marty Scovelin and... Uh, and I hit up Marty. I was like, hey, listen, Lou Lamar is a, a veteran. Like a lot of people didn't realize that Lou Lamar was a veteran. He's in World War II. I was like, you got to do a story on this guy because it's an iconic writer, like nice. super interesting background, especially the, 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 his, his, his cadence to writing and things. Because I don't know how many books, how many books did he write? Do you, you read oh the gosh. story that we did? Yeah, we did a story hard. on him on Coffee or Die, but it was the That's whole lead into this was. I was reading one of your books and I forget which one it was. I was like, oh man. And then Probably True Believer. I, you, that is more like CIA type. Yeah. Stuff. They all do. Uh, but True Believer had it because I was embedded with those guys. I was the only military right. in this covert action program in 2006 in Baghdad. And that's where the, uh, the inspiration for the second novel came from. And one of my relationships with one of the Iraqi Ministry of the Interior guys mm-hmm. that I was working with, and he became a character in the novel. Um, so it was all inspired from that time. And uh, those guys really took care of me. And they were all, you know, the contractor guys were all former right. Delta, former SEALs, whatever yeah. else. And uh, they kind of took me under their wing and, and taught me some of the ropes. And I, I had a, one of my best experiences 
of my time in uniform, even though I didn't have a uniform on. I had long right. hair like this. I yeah, had the yeah. beard, you know, yeah. I loved it. Uh, so it was great for me because that's kind of what I gravitate towards naturally, uh, just not being kind of in line with everybody else. And, yeah. uh, and I loved it. So it's probably, probably true believer. But the fourth one has a lot in it too. This fourth really? one I'm working on, it has a, cause James Reese, the protagonist has to make a decision with what he wants to do. Is he a, is he an assassin? Is he, is he a soldier? Is, mm-hmm. uh, is he a hunter? Is he an intelligence operative? Right. Or is he going to leave that life behind and get out, go off to Montana or Alaska right. and do the things that he really wants to do and find peace. Um, uh, so, so I get to explore some of that, but there's like one thing he needs to do. He still needs the agency for one final thing. So, uh, he can't do on his own. So he goes in. So I have to do, I did all the research that I was doing back in 2006, 2007, when I thought I was going to go in the agency, uh, into that, uh, you know, that, that side of the house. And I get to now take that and that research and apply it to him doing something that I thought I might do back then and have him go through this training and, and, uh, go to the farm and go to Harvey point and do all these things that, uh, that uh, the guys do and uh, then move on and uh, do some things at the agency just so we can get some information to go. Yeah. One more name on that to do right. list. That's huh? right. <laughs> People I want to kill. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Everybody has one of those, right? That was really the inspiration for the first book. Right. You know, I get to, you get to do some things in fiction that you can't do in real life. Yeah, yeah. So very therapeutic. That's why it comes yeah. across as so real because, you know, it is. Yeah. And the torture scene, uh, or the, I think, Oh, that really was, uh, well we done. started talking Thank about you. this really on the podcast well after, after we were talking yeah, to you. really well done. We went down the rabbit hole on uh, just torture devices. Yeah. And what, what's the the Raging Bull one? Oh, no. The Bronze Bull. The Bronze Bull. We started talking about the Bronze uh, Bull. Yeah. Have you I don't know the Bronze Bull. I don't know. Device? I'm going to Google it though after this. So it's a big bronze bull and, the, and it's got like a, a bellowing horn coming out of the mouth and they, you know, it's very simple. They just stuff somebody inside this and then they light a fire underneath and like you hear the bellows of this person as they're dying over the course of yeah because hours. they're screaming and but that's like they're on a trigger yeah they're, <laughs> they're in a big bronze trigger wow. essentially yeah but you know the research i did on it because we talked about it jt brought it up yeah and so this what what, what they think this because it's a ancient rome what they think that the Romans had done at that point was put this out as basically information operations saying, mm. this is something that exists and we do this yeah. to prevent different. Yeah, just a little propaganda scare tactic. Yeah. This was like, Hey, you know, you, you, you commit these types of crimes. The bronze bull is waiting for you and they don't actually, they can't prove that that really existed. Uh, yeah. So they think it could have been just quite literally fabricated by the, by the empire in order to make sure that people just kept their shit in line. Yeah. Hey, Which, that stuff, that stuff works. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I want to have, like, I wanted my books from the beginning to have be the, like, thoughtful violence is the way I, I think about it. Not just like, Oh, you shot right. him in the leg again and asked him a question, <laughs> shot him in the other leg. Like, yeah. you know, I wanted yeah. it to be thoughtful violence and really put a lot of thought into these torture scenes and bring, bring some yeah. history into it because that's a part of the character and who he is. So, uh, a lot of people's favorite scenes are the torture scenes. Uh, and the fourth one has a really good one. I'm really excited about the fourth one. Yeah. Um, but, the third one, I get a lot of people reaching out about that, uh, right. the, uh, the third book, Torture yeah, Scene. So do you mind talking about that real quick? Because yeah, I'm yeah. super curious, like, wh- how, where your research, you know, yeah, how, how, yeah, how you are you thinking that? about that? That one, I'm, I, I can't talk exactly okay, about okay, like that, okay. where I got that one. But, uh, but I guess I, the best way to say it is that uh, the person giving me that information had some, uh, had some ties to, anyway, it, 
it's it was yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, Got so it. it's thoughtful. Yeah, so it's, it's thoughtful. thoughtful. Yeah. It's if you don't it's not typically something you see every day. Right. Um, and then the other one uh, from the the third book, where I had a piano wire around to guys. Yeah, nuts. You know, his, yep. Yep. Yeah, yep. and on a rickety chair. Yeah, on a, so he's going to essentially get hung instead of having it around his neck. Right, just moved it down. Yep, yep. down below. So that um, one came from you. Yeah, you just that thought one came about me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And uh, and then uh, the first one wrapping someone's guts around a tree so they're still alive. I got mm-hmm. that from the Shining Path Gorilla Movement in Peru. Got it. Um, and I got that because I went to lunch with a guy right. who had been part of a Rand Contra. Right. And it was one of those random invites to lunch where I'm like, yeah, that yeah. sounds good. And I went to lunch with this guy and and he started talking about it. And I was like, no way. And yeah. it, was just, it was just part of our conversation. And that might sound strange to people watching to have a conversation about someone wrapping their guts around a tree and getting eaten yeah. alive by the jungle. But it was very natural actually to talk about. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to go research this a little more. So I looked into it and it wasn't, the Shining Path didn't just make it up. Like they got it from indigenous people who got mm. it from indigenous people. Solid, so yeah. it had been something that had been passed right. down over thousands of years. And uh, yeah, it, it's a good one and they used it to win hearts and minds so uh so they and it and it worked for them yeah so I, I, to I use it incorporated into the book i forget do you remember who they, they used to uh uh set tires around people and then yeah where was that at they, was, it, gosh, was that in africa i think they did in africa they do in yeah. somalia i think they yeah that's they a rough light one the, yeah that's a rough one yeah they did. lighting they stack some tires light them on fire so you have this uh, rubber, so you have yeah. the yeah, rubber around you that's not cool that's not, yeah, it's not a cool one. It's definitely not a cool one. Yeah, I feel like it's been played out though a little yeah, bit. It has. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So I need to get a little it's more, just, I got to go a little deeper. I got to go a little deeper each book and have yeah. it be a lot more You got to get more sophisticated. Yep. Yep. Does your wife, does she does she read these and do you allow her to read them before yeah, I do. sections of them? And does she give you feedback and stuff like that? She does. Sometimes I, I hold off a little bit mm-hmm. and pretend, oh, you're so busy. I'm just going to keep right. working on this a little more and then uh, and then wait a bit. But uh, yeah, she does read them and she does give feedback. She's known me for a long time since we're 18. So right. uh, so she kind of knows where my, where my head's she at. Knows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but does, does she ever, just, have you ever let her read one? Or, or She's like, this is amazing. <laughs> does she ever? Does she ever come back? She's like, "This is amazing! Holy shit!" Uh, I you think did she's this? Uh, not really in those type right. of words since we are married. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, she, in a, in a way, yeah, she's she uh, is impressed. I mean, she's known that I wanted to both be a seal and write since right. we were eighteen. So that's when. Uh, so it's not a surprise to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've lugged books around the world. Like every, everywhere right. we've moved, we've moved my library with us. Right. It's like you know Churchill or somebody on a campaign for yeah. you know UK back in the day, having someone carry all these boxes. Right. Or they've back in the day chests of books and minor you know boxes with a PCS move. Uh, but there's a lot of them. So my library is fairly robust because I just love reading. I'm passionate about it. I'm a fan first of right. the genre and, uh, and love writing it and, and always knew that I would. So she wasn't too, too surprised. Mm-hmm. I think she would have been surprised if it wasn't good. Right. Yeah. yeah. If that makes sense. I don't know if that sounds like, too egotistical really? or not, but right. yeah. And then she probably would have told me, she'd like, you know, this, this isn't really any good. Maybe we need to reevaluate yeah. uh, the choices and where we're investing all our time, energy, and effort <laughs> right now into this thing with such a slim chance of success. Um, but for me, that's uh, that's all part of it as well. You know, just yeah. like going to the special operations, like people telling you how hard it is and how the odds are stacked against you. And, right. you know, what are you going to do when you don't make it through buds? Or what are you going to do yeah. when, you don't, when this book doesn't make it? Do you have an agent? Do you know? Like that sort of thing. Like, I don't know anything about all that. I'm just going to put all my energy and effort into training for buds and then into writing the best novel that I possibly can. Like that's where all my bandwidth goes. Yeah. And what year did you come into the Navy? I forget. 96. Okay. What 96. year? Jocko was in the Navy in the 80s? 
He was there ninety said? like one. I know. I think ninety-one. He, I think he was talking about somebody from the eighties in a bus oh, class. He's bus okay. class one eighty something, or he's one seventy-six. Right. I think it was. But anyway, right. uh, but he was in the early nineties. Okay, so he had a couple of years so on. He's like five five years ahead yeah. of you, give or take. Exactly. Got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we just did a podcast with uh, Dudley. Jocko and Dudley. Yeah, exactly. Because we're the total archery challenge out here, and you guys are doing something amazing. I think this podcast will come out after you do it, and I'm right. going to try to help out the best I can, um, but doing an adaptive shoot in Utah for yep. veterans that have come back with um, amputees, missing yep. arms and legs, maybe guys dealing with some post-traumatic stress and dealing with how to make this transition into a, a new life and finding mission and finding purpose. And, you know, you didn't, this will be amazing to do, but you've already done so much just by the example. And you do that to me too. Like I looked at you guys and I looked at other, other uh, uh, companies out there that you wouldn't typically look at from the publishing space trying right. to take lessons. Um, but for me, I saw what you guys did, how you built out. Uh, essentially, for me, it would be a readership. Right. And for you guys, it's, it's coffee drinkers and consumers of, of media and, and everything else you have going on. But I looked at that and said, how can I take a little bit of this, a slice of it, and uh, make it authentic to me, but apply it apply these lessons to the publishing space because no one's ever done that mm, before. Right. And same thing, and look at some Red Bull, look at uh, Monster, Come think, look at Apple, how, they, how you get your iPhone, like all these little things like that. And just take a little sliver here yeah. and there and apply it. But you've done that for so many people to look at you guys and be like, wow, look what these guys have done. They got out, they looked at the space, they identified opportunity and then they crushed it. And like that is, that. there's nothing more valuable than that. Of all the awesome stuff that you guys do, like that is the most impressive thing and the most valuable thing for somebody, not just leaving the military, but leaving make any transition in life, seeing that and then going like, you know what? I can do this too. So it's awesome. Well, I appreciate it. You know, it's funny because I, I think about it and most of the time, like we were talking earlier, most of the time I'm, I'm like, yeah, I, we set the example by by saying, well, if we can do it, then anybody can do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, not, but I, 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 I not entirely think, true, but it provides inspiration. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, not super high uh, IQs no, rolling through here. Hey, <laughs> no, I, I think that's a big part of it, which is I'm more of a, I like to, to do things. And then if people are so inclined to do the same thing, then great. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't like to shift into, motivational speaker mode. That's not my, that's not my, that's not my thing. That's, obviously no, you don't it's have not to because it's all by I don't, example, I don't, which I is the best like part of it. <laughs> I, you yeah. know, I think for the company and I'm glad, I'm super glad that we, we've been able to do that for, mm. for, I think I've heard that from a few different veterans out mm. there where like, man, I looked at what you guys are doing. I was like, man, how can I do that? And I, I, I really like that aspect of the company as far as being able to set the, not even set, set an, an example you know, the archery stuff for us is, it's so important for, for the company because, it's, you know, one, it's Black Rifle Coffee, right? So, you know, as we transition out of service and I establish the coffee company with, you know, an homage to my service rifle. And then as we, you know, develop and evolve the company and we grow the company and we keep hiring more veterans and we do more nonprofits, we'll, we'll give close to a million dollars back this year. Nice. in product and in direct like direct contributions uh, and you know I think the cool thing about it is you know we're really concerned with how we can take the company and the success of the company and then shift it to how can we how can we force multiply that success across mm -hmm. the board right you know through entertain inform and inspire that's what we do over here in media. Yeah. 
you know, there's a lot of things that we're, we're doing and it looks for people that look at it from the social media perspective, they're like, those fucking dudes, all they're doing is just <laughs> yeah. out there just having, having fun. fun. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just having fun. It's like, yeah, but that is the point of life. And I've had to remind people this too, which is when you have a profession that you can enjoy and have fun in, like that's kind of the whole, like you, you get to win. Like you're winning at the game, right? Yeah. So if you, and, and Logan and I have talked about this so many times where I'm like, man, we, we sucked it up and we, we enjoyed what we did is in our previous profession. We've also eaten a lot of shit, right? And I've been self-absorbed into a, a violent profession or at least a profession of violence for a long period of time. I'm not really interested in that anymore, right? I'm not interested mm-hmm. in it. Uh, I'm interested in trying to figure out how we can plug in positivity into the community. You know, how do we directly inject our value proposition back in not only the veteran, the veteran community, because that is what we're primarily concerned with, mm-hmm. but then how does that inject and then propagate into the overall community? So how are we a force of positivity versus, uh, you know, in the previous profession, I think we, at least I know I did, I started to dwell a lot on the negative aspects mm-hmm. of things versus how do we really focus on the positive? So hearing that is 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 really is, yeah is really yeah. nice. And you know that example for other parts of the veteran community. You know, Jocko wrote a whole book on it. This idea of extreme ownership. Yeah, that, that's really all we do. Like when we think about the brand, like this is our baby. Like we we care about this thing a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, same with with your protagonist James mm-hmm. it's like you care about that guy. Oh, like yeah. you you mm-hmm. you will make sure and you will work long hours mm-hmm. to to ensure that brand gets gets mm-hmm. established and enhanced throughout its its process and that's that's really what you know if you were to come work at black rifle like that that is the single biggest biggest ticket to success i think is just like caring about mm-hmm. what you're doing having the oh, yeah. sense of ownership like it's yours you oh, know yeah. what i mean because when something's yours you care differently about it and really it's just diving into that thing so much and putting enough of yourself into it that you really truly care about it and will do anything to see it mm-hmm. succeed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's also that part that it's not, you didn't make it up. You didn't say, all right, how can we make some money? Uh, let's identify something. Okay, there it is. Mm-hmm. Let's go after that. It's like, it's authentic to you, which is overused. Yeah. I know, but it's, there's not a better term for it. Um, because it, cause it's so, especially in today's world, like maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, for sure, 40 years ago, you could have picked something and made it successful because as leaders in companies, you're not out there. We're not there on social media. It didn't exist in 1950, 1955 and 1960. Right. It was just a thing, a widget you went in, you're trying to make it successful, whatever. But now it's you. And right. there's so much of people want to know about who's behind these companies and, and what are they really about. And, and that authenticity piece is now so important where it wasn't in 1960 or 1965 because mm-hmm. there yeah. weren't those ways for people to connect with you, to engage with you, to see you on a right. daily basis have putting something out there, which is essentially your storefront. And, uh, and it's just an amazing time to be, there's a lot of opportunity there There and you guys, uh, and you guys saw that and people that do it right. Like you guys, by keeping it true and real and authentic and raw, uh, which is what I do with writing because that's all I can do. I don't know how to do it any other way. Uh, I wouldn't know how to do anything in life uh, any other way than that. Um, but I seem to see people, people might stumble and, but they're going to get caught these days. Like you're going to, it's going to be obvious that it's not real. It's not authentic. It's not them. It's not raw. And people recognize that and go elsewhere. 
There's a lot of that out there, right? It's it's the inauthenticity where people are are more exploitive in nature, and uh, you know, I'm obviously we're we're a for profit company, right? And you know, we have to run the a profitable company for us to continue to hit our goals and objectives. And a big part of the goals and objectives is is being a a positive influence and example for the community, right? Yeah. That's, that's a big goal. It, well, when you start to define that, and then as you start to look at your goals and objectives directly related to those things, you have to run a profitable company and you have to scale it because why? Why do you have to scale it? To scale it because we want to hire more veterans. We want to create more opportunities for veterans to own coffee shops. Right. We want to do all these things. Well, in order to do all those things, you have to have a bigger company. You have to create more revenue. You yep. have to create more profit because mm-hmm. a lot of people are like, "Well, you're why are you scaling the company? You know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Because we have to be an example. We have to be the the bad news bearers example to everybody that that thinks that they can't fucking do it. And if we ring a bell in the stock market and and you know publicly trade the company at a billion dollar valuation and and in you know six or seven fucking years from starting a company, I think that that inspires a whole generation of veteran entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial veterans, yeah. right? To go out and say, "Fuck, man! If those knuckleheads can do that, if those like Evan Logan, Matt, and the fucking weirdo Jared can go make a bunch of stupid videos and do that, like yeah. holy shit, dude! Imagine what I can do because I'm fucking ten times smarter yeah. than those dudes, and you know, and, and that's." All this, the point of this entire exercise, right? It's like, man, what gets me up at 4.30 in the morning, what puts me to bed at fucking midnight or whenever it is, it's, you know, it's the it's, it's solving the problem. And more importantly, it's making sure that we're solving the problem correctly in a way that's it's ethically acceptable to the community. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, I don't know if this is my too big of a rabbit hole, but a lot of people are like, well, you... You guys are just fucking raking it in. It's like, ah, man, what you do with your company's profits and a true capitalist, right? A true capitalist is uh, not necessarily somebody, a, a, a profiteer is about chasing profit to line their pockets. Mm-hmm. The capitalist is different. They want to build. They want to build infrastructure. They want to create opportunities. They want to grow a company in a different way. Right, so when you're building companies and ecosystems and re- kind of redefining corporate landscape, that's different. Like, the, and, and there's a whole there's, there's a whole different side of, of of businesses out there, and I think that business sometimes gets a negative um, image because they're like, "Well, you guys are profiteers." It's like I'm not a profiteer; I'm a capitalist, and I, I build. Structures and systems and I like systems that. You got some Ayn Rand going there. You got some Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged in there. It's 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 completely different. So a lot of people, you know, I think they look at chasing dollars, right? They want to chase dollars, and I'm I'm mm. all for it. I say great, but what are you going to do with those dollars? Because it's not going to make your life better if all you're going to do is look at your numbers and your accounts every day and say, "Holy shit, how how fucking popular and successful am I at, at doing this?" Like this system that we built and the ecosystem that we built is is directly it directly translates to what we do with people's dollars. And when I tell people, I'm like, vote with your dollar. Go out and vote with your dollar. And so when we have 260 people in the company and we have above a 50% veteran hiring rate and we give a million dollars back to 
you know, veteran nonprofits and initiatives. Awesome. And we fucking do, like we put our money where our mouth is. Like you're creating billions of impressions on entertain, inform and inspire. We're out here throwing arrows in the middle of fucking nowhere. We're flying, <laughs> you know, adaptive athletes out. We're hosting fucking tournaments. We're encouraging people for like positive use of firearms, you know, discouraging bad behavior and politicians. Like these are all the things that are like, great. I'm not driving a fucking Maserati, Jack, you know what I mean? I'm not driving a Maserati. I don't give a fuck about owning a Ferrari. You know what I care about? Like having a great company, great that's people. Awesome. And that's why it's going the way it is. Yeah. And employing, you know, future generations of veterans. Like what yeah, you know, that's it. like my my little exercise when I'm, you know, not in the in the trenches and thick of things is like, how how can I make moves right now so that in 20 or 30 years we become the the flow for people to to yeah. generate careers like mm -hmm. I I don't want vets to come in you know this on your resume it's super awesome you know if you do two years with us you know that that'll get you a lot of a credit moving yeah. forward in the real but I want to generate careers for people I want people to work for Black Rifle for thirty years so how do we generate that system mm -hmm. you know I think uh, it was April or something we did a big hiring initiative mm -hmm. we hired five vets in like two weeks or something yeah. like they like that's we're we're trying to get to the point where we're teaching people how to fish, not just giving yeah. them a fish, you know. Mm -hmm. And that purpose to be attached to something like that is like I that's all I need, you know. Yeah. Well, where do you guys think it came from where people look and veterans look at themselves as uh, or the prevailing wisdom is that you had to go out there and show that it's possible. Whereas we had guys come back from World War II. You know what they did when they got home? They got to work and they built us into yeah. the country we are today from 1945, you know, into the 70s. Like those guys were business leaders. They were mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. They went out there and created companies and they just, they crushed it and made us the most powerful country in the world. Uh, and then at some point along the way, maybe it was via Vietnam, who knows what mm -hmm. it was, but uh, through media, through mm -hmm. uh, movies, uh, books, whatever else, uh, the popular impression and the popular culture started to look at veterans as wounded, regardless of whether they were actually yeah. missing an arm or a leg or not, but as not being able to be successful when they left military yeah. service. So somewhere in there from World War II up until mid-70s, there was a shift. Yeah, it wasn't uh, respect, it became pity. Exactly, exactly. And that has to, we have to shift that focus. So it's a different uh, different deal. When you go back and you look at those business leaders that came out from yeah. World War II, I mean, it's surprising. And, they didn't, and you didn't even realize that they were because it was just, well, so many people served. And then you go look at someone's bio mm -hmm. who retired in 1980 or something right. like that. You look back, you're like, oh my gosh, this guy was on the beach in Normandy. Yeah. Uh, and I go back and I look at authors Crazy. and I'm looking at guys, you know, I, I do these posts where I talk about uh, different authors that inspired me throughout my life. And I go back and I do a little research and I'm like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Like you just talked about Louis L'Amour. But I look at these guys, I'm like, oh, Jack Higgins. Oh my gosh, no way. Yeah. I cannot believe this guy was in World War II or whatever. Sometimes an actor that you like uh, that uh, passes away, you look back and see that and you're like, oh my gosh, look at this guy who was in the Pacific campaign and he was on all these islands. Oh my gosh, this guy stormed 10 different islands right. under enemy machine gun fire. Yeah. And then he came back and he was in Hollywood and you never really knew. Never knew. Uh, yeah, but it's but it's somewhere along the line, something shifted, but uh, but you're shifting it back with what you're doing. And I hope that, you know, guys like Jocko and hopefully, you know, some of the others of us that are out there doing positive things with our platforms uh, are creating a different impression and the mm -hmm. correct impression um, that's not... Uh, influenced by this popular culture from the mid seventies up to today that we're wounded and need pity. Well, it's, I, hey, it's time to get to work. We're going to come back from our military service and we're going to crush it. That's what I, we're going to do. Think there's, I, I think there's been a lot of people too, and this could be completely fucking inaccurate and total bullshit. 
But I think there's been a lot of people, and this is one thing that I see all the time, which is, you know, the the homeless person on the side of the road that says, you know, veteran, please help. And I know like when I'm driving, like 99 out of a hundred of those guys are not veterans. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're not veterans. And you know why? Because I can look at them. And it's like, bro, come on, man. You're like, you're like 50 years old. You weren't in Vietnam. You weren't even alive yet, dude. Like, why are you wearing a Vietnam hat? Or I've stopped. I don't know how many times they're like, Hey, so what unit were you in? What do you mean? What, what do you mean? Or whatever. Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, it's a joke. So I think there's been a lot of people in the past several decades that have uh, quite literally stolen valor and gone out and said, I'm a veteran, please help me because it's easy to pull the, the heartstrings of people. But most of the veterans that I know are not looking for a handout. You know, they're fucking ass kicking type A motivational yeah. motherfuckers that are like, yeah, Hey man, for I, I'm, I'm doing it. Like yeah. I'm doing it. Nobody's standing in my way. You know, now, do I know guys and if I had a hard time transitioning out of the mill and finding purpose, finding a new mission? Yes. Uh, but those guys are, 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 I think they're exceptional, obviously because of our backgrounds and where we come from. And there's, there's a wide variety of people that are constantly transitioning out of the mill. But I think to your point, you had a whole generation of people that fought in World War II. Everybody was a collective effort, mm-hmm. right? It's collective effort. Now we have less than 1% of the entire population that ever, you know, steps out the door. And then you have a minority percentage of those people that have served that have actually served in combat and direct combat, right? So, you know, uh, for us, I think as a collective, especially the combat veteran, you know, collective community as a whole, we do have a responsibility to one another to include, you know, you and everybody. So as you're saying, like, Hey, what we're doing, I'm like, no, what we're doing, you know, like what you're doing, what Jocko's doing, what, you know, Dudley's doing and Andy's doing, like everybody going out and just fucking saying, no, I'll I'll be a success. I'm just going to go out and do it. You know, you guys can watch and you can, you know, through social media, you can watch. I'll set the, I'll set some type of an example. And that's one of the big things starting it six years ago, you know, and working through this for several years, we've really focused this in the last couple of years. You know, how do we make sure that we're, we're shifting the platform, making sure the platform is injecting positive value into people's lives, not just these are funny because they are like, we make, we love making funny videos and we love making fucking stupid videos. Like, we love it. We legitimately <laughs> enjoy making really fucking dumb shit. We love it. It's super fun. It is, but it's a process. It's still work. Like yeah. it's not like you just wake up oh, yeah. out of bed in the morning and go, "Hey, Logan, let's what make some dumbass shit that's going to be yeah. seen a couple million times." Oh, yeah, especially when we're so competitive, you know, like all of us. And then you have that, like, we have to constantly one up ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Like, like we can't be taking step backwards. So right. Like, you know, the process takes a little bit longer now. Oh, yeah. We have to have a little bit more money flow into it sometimes, and like. There, there's a lot that happens behind oh, the yeah. scenes. A you just pull out an iPhone and say, go blow that up over there. Oh, awesome. Oh, we post cool. it. Like, yeah. yeah. And when it, you make it look easy, that uh, means you're doing something halfway yep. decent. Exactly. And halfway yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So looking at what you're doing and looking, you know, it's so funny because, you know, reading and listening to your books over the last couple of years, I'm like, fuck, man. This guy's really good. This guy's really good. I could probably do that. 
<laughs> no. You find K, I just gotta no, do the I work. Got it. You know, no, I got it. I'm and doing the work and yeah. studying the craft and, and being just, passionate just about a it. Just a lifetime of work. Yeah, you probably could do it. Yeah, a lifetime of work. That does help. 20 it, years, yeah. 30 years of just thinking about it. Yeah. No, it's. That definitely helps having a connection to those novels and being so passionate about them, having read them so early on in the 80s and then continue having read new stuff all the way up through right. today um, instead of just waking up one day and saying, oh, I think I like to write a book. Maybe I should go back and read a little little bit, some, some things that people have written in the past and kind of reading them, being distracted over here by the kids or whatever else. Like, no, I was like at my house under the covers with a flashlight reading right. David Morrell, Brotherhood of the Rose yeah, in like 1985 yeah. or whatever. And like, I have great memories of doing that or being outside at, at the house trying to find a quiet place and reading these books growing up. And I just have such fond memories of doing that, but they were teaching me how to write. It wasn't right. just me escaping into them. I was learning some military stuff, which is what I thought was the main value of it. But what they were really teaching me was how to write and, how, and teaching me what I liked, what I didn't, what worked, what didn't, and then allowing me to take those and apply them now, today, doing what I'm doing. So I feel very fortunate that I was introduced to reading at a very early age from my mom that I absolutely love it. I'm passionate about it. And I'm a fan first and, uh, and all that work. Cause it would probably be very difficult to just hop in today and then go back and read last of the breed, go back and read brotherhood of the right. Rose, go back yeah. and read the spy who came from the cold, like understand that history. It helps to have lived it. We, yeah. we are so fucking excited. And not only like, we're so happy just to the fact that, you know, being connected to you, being connected to what you're doing with your books. Like it's our, it's our literally our, just our, our privilege to just oh. plug in however we can, Thank you, brother. like do what we can. I mean, appreciate it. It's, it's a, it's a real it. value proposition back to the guys that, that drink black rifle coffee, that listen to FRA. Like you, you know, Jack's not giving us, you know, a couple bucks under the table by any stretch of the imagination. We just legitimately love what you're doing Everything you got going on. If you haven't read one of his books, you got to go, you, you've got to just Google Jack Carr, pick up whichever one you want because they're all good. Thank In you. sequence, if you want to start, you're going to start with Terminal List and then you're going to work right. your way through. Uh, I highly recommend doing that because they're amazing books. And obviously, you're right up the road. So Jack's going to be on these podcasts all the time. So awesome. Let's go shoot some arrows. Let's, let's go, go shoot some arrows. Yeah. Let's do it. Awesome. <laughs>